My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. So manufacturing, logistics, storage, it's all going very strong and it will continue to do so, I think, long term, because it was a trend that we saw weakness in retail well before COVID. COVID's just kind of sped things up, really, you know, in terms of pushing more people towards industrials. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we continue our discussion with Scott O'Neill, an engineer turned investor who achieved his goal of $300,000 passive income per annum at the age of 28. Hear about how he moved from investing in residential to commercial real estate and what happens to the value of commercial property when you increase the rent. O'Neill shares with us when he realized commercial property was the path he wanted to follow and details a risk he took early on. Probably my first commercial property. So it was um, it was a supermarket, small supermarket and a fish and chip shop. So like a two titles, two different businesses. They've both been long term. Uh, I bought the property on a very high yield, you know, circa 7.58% net and the supermarket had nine months left on the lease, but the, uh, they've been there for like 20 years. And then the um, fish and chip shop, similar time frame. he was on a three-year lease. It was, um, it was one of those moments where everyone said, don't buy it because the, the risk on the lease being too short was a risk, you know, like if we had to replace the tenant, that would be tricky. Um, but we bought the property and it's, we basically renegotiated the lease to a five-year lease. I went back to a valuer and he said, yeah, it's gone up about 15% just because you're renegotiating on the lease. And I'm thinking developers like, you know, work six months, 12 months of their life to get a 15% return. I've just done it with a stroke of a pen. And that was the exciting bit. Not only that, there was a seven and a half to eight percent net return from day one as well. So and the aha moment was like, you can actually create very good equity out of commercial. It's not just the cash flow. It was, uh, it was the fact that we, uh, we, we took a property that had a weak lease and turned it into a stronger one. And that will result in uh, making it look more attractive to the market because more investors want a five-year lease versus a nine-month. So you could sell it for more. We didn't sell it. We rebated it. You know, again, that produced equity for another day. Um, and look, we, we're basically 
love properties. These are the types of properties we find for clients. And some don't want to take those risks and just rather buy the five-year lease as well because of their security. Everyone's got a different, uh, you know, strategy. But um, that was a big moment because I, I didn't know, I'd never read in a book that you could create equity through a lease and negotiating. You know, that that's new to me. And um, now it's just, it's everyday life. Anil goes on to detail how he came across the first commercial property he purchased, which happened to be across the country from him in Perth. It was just on the internet. So I, um, I remember at the days of the unit block yields not meeting expectations, I started just looking on real commercial and I, I just did everything I could to learn about it. So I learned about like the office markets, the industrial markets, the retail markets, read every single thing I could. There was a uh, a lack of information out there, but Google and just sheer time and calling up hundreds of agents, just working out the local sub-markets and what, what parts were going good, where the risks were. Like it was just trial and error to start with. But um, I, I landed on the fact I wanted a supermarket or a food-related business because this is this is five years plus ago. And, you know, I always thought food can't go out of fashion. People have got to eat. You know, I looked at the location. It was a fairly working class area and, um, you know, that's good. You know, there, there was there was a good trade from cigarettes from the supermarket as well. They were selling a lot of, you know, all the usual day-to-day stuff. It wasn't a major like a, a Coles or Woolies, but it was, um, you know, one of the smaller guys. And I think that's quite recession-proof. An efficient ship shop that's been there 20 years in Perth you know, it's, again, like if they've survived 20 years through that market, they're doing pretty well. Now, with a mix of residential and commercial in his property portfolio, he explains when and how he made the decision to make commercial his main priority. So, 2015 is when it, it started. So, I had I had lots, you know, I, I had about sort of 50, uh, about sort of, I think, 19 residential properties at that point. So it was a bit of a diversity play as well. And uh, I guess if I kept going down the residential route, I would have just started creating more headaches because residential takes a lot of management. You're dealing with tenants that come and go every six to 12 months, or if you're lucky, they stay longer. But uh, I was dealing with a lot of tenancy issues. You know, when you own a lot of properties that are you know, like even the the better quality ones I had were having dramas with fussy tenants. You know, there was there was always just every month it felt like I was spending multiple thousands of dollars on on stuff I didn't even see or, or, or benefit from, and um, you sort of lose touch of it. And commercial, I like the idea the tenant pays all the outgoings, the rates, the insurance, the you know the the maintenance. Like it, it's very automated which is great. So you're literally just collecting rent. And if you've got a long lease, you cannot even hear about the property for a long time. So that attracted me a lot because I like the idea that it could scale more, you know. And the more I started talking to people in commercial space, the more I realised this, this is where, like, there is real wealth. Like, there's people that you've never heard of owning hundreds of millions of dollars of commercial property, you know, like the old guy has just built an industrial estate and now he owns all of it. And he's sold off portions. He's worth tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, you don't hear many of those stor- like similar level stories with residential because most people will, uh, you know, you might get your 10, some people buy 20 houses and then, you know, what now? You know, like it, you don't just keep repeating the process 
unless I think, unless there's a bit of ignorance that there's nowhere better, better to put your money. And commercial is definitely a place to put it if, uh, if you want to go to that next level commercial uh, portfolio size, because lending is its own lending criteria again. There is, uh, there's avenues to lending commercial, even if you tapped out of residential. So that's important. A lot of people reach a limit with residential and then commercial is a way of going. As long as you've got the deposit, you can effectively keep lending. And just dealing with better quality tenants. Like these tenants in commercial have their own business reputation. They've got, you know, they've got Google reviews they, they need to maintain. They're, like they've got reputations that will mean they will pay their rent if business is okay. So all you've got to do is research the business, make sure their business is okay. And you could, like just statistically speaking, out of our clients, like you could almost say, you you know, we've had about 10 people out of 2,000 purchases have problems with their tenants. So the odds are pretty good. Uh, residential, uh, it's a lot higher. People will just get a bad tenant and have bad luck and uh, there's nothing you can do about it other than clean your property up and start again. And uh yeah, it's just a little bit more long-term commercial stuff. With COVID wrecking havoc on the future of office spaces, Anil gives his thoughts on what the future may look like within the office, retail and industrial areas. This is why I like commercial because you can go into sub-markets. So, there's three main areas, office, retail and industrial. So, we all know office is not looking good right now. You know, people are working from home, the CBDs are quite vacant, there's a uh, you know, there's a bit of a question mark on uh, will it go back to 100% of what, what it was? And, uh, you know, these are reasons for us not to invest in office. However, there's subsectors of the office market that are going very good, like suburban offices, you know, your local solicitor, your accountant, you know, medical, you know, you might have a you know, physiotherapist, that type of stuff. So it's, it's horses, of course, as there's, uh, you know, you can't kind of uh, put it all in the same bag, but uh, retail's another one that's kind of a little bit hit and miss at the moment. We we don't do too much retail unless it's got a very solid business and they've got a good trading history and there's a, I guess, a good fit out and then maybe it's a high traffic area. Neighbourhood shopping centres are an example of stuff that's going pretty well because people still need to go to the supermarket. You might have a pharmacist there and a you know a specialist there and like those types of things can work very well. Uh, what we kind of specialise in at Rethink Investing is industrial at the moment. There is a huge groundswell of uh, tenant demand that's been created from COVID. So COVID's pushed a lot of businesses online. That means more need for storage. There's a lot more depend- less dependency on overseas manufacturing because of uh, supply chains are weaker. So that means local manufacturing is coming online more. So Manufacturing, logistics, storage, it's all going very strong and it will continue to do so, I think, long-term because it was a trend that we saw weakness in retail well before COVID. COVID's just kind of sped things up really you know, in terms of pushing more people towards industrial. So I'm not saying all retail's bad or all office is bad or all re- uh, industrial's good. There's it, it, just you've got to research within those markets and, and you will find variances that are that you can't find with residential. Residential is more of a overall kind of sentiment-based market, you know, driven by interest rates and people's incomes. Um, commercial is a little bit more specific, but that's why I like it because you can research your way into a winner uh, and cherry-pick properties a lot better and you're not as influenced by the wider market.
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about finding the right property for the right client. Number one, you've got to work out your budget. So a lot of our clients might be refinancing from the home, you know, like, and that might allow them to buy a 500 grand property or a $2 million property. We also discussed the importance of due diligence and how a residential investor may find differences in the process. Quite involved and every property is different too. So this is where a lot of residential uh, investors struggle because it's not, you know, and I've seen even experienced residential buyers agents try a commercial and they get it so wrong because they're they're assuming the information's correct that's been presented to them. We hear more about his current successes. So. This is what we're having so much success with at the moment. We're buying properties at say 7% net yields, but we're quickly seeing the market tighten where 6% is a, an acceptable rate. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, Property Investor. Is your cash or equity currently earning you 1 to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a higher return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Anil shares his approach to the commercial market and describes how he finds the right properties for himself and his clients. Number one, you've got to work out your budget. So a lot of our clients might be refinancing from the home, you know, like, and that might allow them to buy a 500 grand property or a $2 million property. Whatever it is, we then work out what's the best property they can afford under that range is. So uh, it's about, we like capital city locations or major regional centers. Um, but our strategy is to buy tenanted properties and we want to see that there's a good tenant pool around you. So never assume the current tenant's going to be there forever because they're just not. You know, in 20 years time, you're going to have a different tenant most likely. So that's where it's important to buy good quality properties in good quality areas. So we we target properties near international airports or close to the CBD or near massive residential estates that are you know, going to be feeding people into the area long term. We don't go out to the middle of nowhere to find a very high yielding asset just because it's high yielding. And that's a mistake some novice investors make. They look at the yield only and go, oh, look, I need an eight or a nine percent net yield. It's, it's just silly to, to only look at the yield. You've got to look at, I'd rather get a really rock solid 6.5 net yield if the tenant's well known, going to pay uninterrupted income for the next 10 years. There's going to be a rental increase on it anyway, so there's rental growth. All of a sudden, that face value yield is not as important. It's more about the growth, if anything, and the consistency of income. So we always look at it from that point of view. How quickly could we release the property? It's That's how I approach my investing and, and our clients. And uh, if, you, if you're happy with that, you know, if it's say, all right, we predict there's going to be a two-month vacancy if we lose this tenant because the neighbor's property got leased out in two months, last year or maybe you've did, we've seen 10 different examples where some rented in one month, some rented in four months, some rented in three and you average it out and you can actually work out or at least predict how long the vacancy would be. And as long as it's not crazy time, um, you know, it's, you can, you can then 
put that into your, your due diligence model. Um, we call up the tenants, we work out the succession plans, we do a competitor analysis, we do credit checks on businesses, we check the square meter rates on the lease, we get the lawyers to do legal lease reviews. We, uh, you know, we will go into you know, every little legal part of the property, make sure all the uh, structures are approved. If they're not, make sure it's not counted in the valuation. Get the builder out there, check it's all up to date, modern, compliant. Uh, it's it's quite involved and every property is different too. So this is where a lot of residential uh, investors struggle because it's not, you know, and I've seen even experienced residential buyers agents try a commercial and they get it so wrong because they're, they're assuming the information's correct that's being presented to them and you can't do that. You've got to actually go through every rates notice, every check the insurance is valid, check the tenants paid for the last two years in a row uninterrupted, you know, have they had COVID relief payments, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's a lot more time consuming, which turns people off, I guess. With residential property differing so greatly to commercial, and ever-changing lending processes, Anil explains full doc and lease doc loans and how he finances his commercial properties. So the two main ways are like a full doc loan or a low doc. So full doc is you just show your financials. So if you're on a salary, use a full doc loan. You'll get a very good interest rate. Um, we're seeing anywhere like this is you know, end of 2020, we're seeing um, you know rates as low as 1.8% all the way up to about 5%. Average is around 3%, but that's starting to get on the high side at, at the moment. So interest rates are very good. If for some reason you have a cash deposit with no job or a cash deposit and you're in between jobs or um, maybe you're a commission only type person, it's going to be hard to get a full doc loan, but you can actually get a lease doc loan. What a lease doc loan is, is a loan on the property itself. So you come up with the deposit, but the strength of the lease is enough to give you a loan on the property. This is very handy if you've reached a limit with your residential lending, because you can actually get a loan outside the normal lending criteria. And this, again, you just need the deposit as, as something to invest in. Valuations also differ between residential and commercial properties. Anil discusses those differences and the importance of getting a solid valuation. So evaluations are a lot more detailed so that they can be 50 pages long and um, you basically will get them as part of the, I guess, the uh, lending process. So it's a good part of due diligence as well. Valuers are by nature and, you know, they're, they're going to be conservative. So, you know, we can sometimes use a short valuation as a negotiating tool to get money off the property. Um, but yeah, look, most of them come in at contract price. Uh, you just you've got to pay for them. They're about anywhere from a thousand to three thousand for the average property. But it's all factored in in when you're doing the initial loan application. So you uh, you know if you're buying an expensive property and you're getting you, you spend fifteen hundred dollars on a valuation, it's very good peace of mind as well. So uh, and the bank wants to see it. So that'll uh, that'll be your safety net. So let's say, for example, we've got a, a property that you've just purchased. Um, let's just make it round figures: five hundred thousand. It's yielding about a seven percent yield. You put a little bit of work and effort into it to bring it up the yield to maybe say ten percent. Does that also change how the property is valued in the future? Like, would you be saying you could get capital growth through that way as well? Yeah. So you know, if you've got a five hundred gram property uh, and it's seven percent return, let's say you've got a 
you know, an interest rate of 3% on that, you've done a 70% loan, that's going to do give you about 28 grand clear per annum in your, in your pocket. So if you somehow increase the, uh, I guess, the, the rent, you know, let's say it's double, you're going to double your, uh, your price. So if uh, it might take you 10 years to get your 35 grand net income to, you know, to a, you know, let's say it goes to 55,000, uh, your value is going to be quietly close aligned to that rise in rent. So you can actually get, it's almost, you know, I don't like ever using the word guaranteed because nothing's guaranteed, but when you've got a, a lease and it's got a locked in 3% or 4% increase per annum, that's how much your rent's growing each year and it's scheduled. There's no uh, way the tenant can get out of that unless you agree to it. Um, that means you're going to get 3 to 4% growth just on the, the value of the rent. The other growth is going to be yield compression. So what yield compression means is let's say you've got a 7% asset. If the yield drops in the area to 6.5, so everyone's now accepting a 6.5 cap capitalization rate, the property is no longer worth 500 grand. It's, it's now worth 538,000. If the yield drops down to 6%, which people are happy, the property is now worth 583,000. So you can see the cap rate is really important for valuation. So this is what we're having so much success with at the moment. We're buying properties that say 7% net yields, but we're quickly seeing the market tighten where 6% is a, an acceptable rate. And you know, in that 500 grand example, a, you know, a yield compression of 1% equates to an $83,000 value increase for every 500,000 you purchase. So that's equity that you can use and leverage off and go again. If you, you know, especially considering the income of these properties are good, your, uh, your lending scenario, although it is more complex, is, uh, is more favorable in many cases because you've got higher net incomes to lend against. Scott O'Neill's story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. Join us for part 3 where we'll talk about the differences between residential and commercial properties. These things actually add value to your property and um, you can take it to the bank and refinance and, and go again in many cases. So yeah, it's, uh, it's just like residential but it's probably a little bit more instant when you get it right. The types of people who buy and sell commercial property and who you can generally find within price brackets. So with the super high value stuff, it's uh, commonly syndicates, so managed funds and they're actually just divesting their asset moving on to the next one. So that's your 10 mil plus, plus range, generally syndicates with the exception of a couple of high net worths but not, not often. We discussed the benefits that O'Neill's portfolio has given him and his family. Ever since I started the business with the exception of this year, I've spent three months overseas where I literally barely do any work. So if we were... I guess money hungry, we wouldn't do that. We would literally stay and work because that does cost the business a lot of revenue every time we do that. But um, but it's it, it's enjoyable to do that. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. 
Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short 6 months. To register interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 